if who I am and my will are identical, that means I had no freedom because my nature determines my will mm. for Adam and Eve fall. Their nature is perfect. After the fall, their nature determines that they are evil and that the only good that they do is by accident. Welcome back to Trouble in Paradise. This is our second attempt at a podcast episode. So hopefully you gleaned something positive from the first one and we are we are going to dive right in. So the tone we want to set this week comes from Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 and 15 verses 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And with that, I will kick it over to Matt to talk to us about what comes to mind. This should be a verse we memorize like John 3.16. It should be up there. I don't think it has the same impact as some of these other verses. Yet it's one of these purpose statements in the Bible that's very profound. And then if you cross-reference that one with First John, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. I believe that the reason these verses don't get as much, they're not up there with Ephesians and with Romans and, and John 3.16, is that we don't appreciate them. Because they're sort of confusing, and it goes back to our previous conversation about the thing that God is saving you from is your inherited depravity. Where's the devil play into this? And where does slavery to the fear of death play into this? I think we don't know what to do with the devil. So let me interject there. It almost sounds like the issue is not, obviously, the issue is not with Scripture itself. The issue is with the American because that's our context, and we're always very careful to say that's what we're critiquing, the American iteration of the Eden narrative and then how that plays out in the New Testament gospel narrative. But we know that this was the European context as well. Whether you're in Germany or in England, we're in the same, the same realm of ideas. But yes, in America, this is how, how things have played out. So if we go to verse 14... Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. How, how would somebody coming at this from original sin hear that? Well, the reason for the incarnation so often in, in Western theology is the vehicle, the means towards the passion, where, where Christ suffers the sins of either the elect or the whole world. The incarnation is not, I mean, maybe it's broadened out, but that becomes the focus. The clear meaning there is, the meaning of the incarnation there, is that Christ takes on what we are in order to defeat death and to free us from slavery to fear. The devil, that Satan, was calling the shots until then. Slavery to fear is definitely different from a genetic passing of this corruption of sin. Is it possible that they're both because I, I, I know I know that when I've heard exposition of original sin, there's almost never are people using the phrase genetic 
passing of sin, but that's definitely implied. You're born that way. You're born that way. We say people didn't know about genetics. Yeah, there was, yeah, there was some, some knowledge. Yeah, you think of it was like rudimentary. the beginning of John where it says about the, the children of God, that they were born not according to the flesh, not according to the will of man, but of God. They knew how to farm. They knew about animals. They knew about bloodlines. Mm -hmm. They just didn't call it genetics. Yeah. So whether you say blood relative or genetic relative, it's the same thing. Let's maybe reset, though, uh, back to the first episode, uh, what we mean by original sin and what we mean by the alternative to original sin, which I know we're going to dive into today. Original sin, when I hear that, and then you can piggyback and, and add as needed. When I hear original sin, what I heard growing up as a child was because my father is a sinner, I'm a sinner. There's definitely truth there. I, I don't want to deconstruct the idea that every doctrine I inherited is you know, completely wrong. That's not our point. We are not deconstructing faith for the purpose of getting rid of it. We're simply trying to fully understand the broadness of the ideas. So when I hear original sin, I hear I'm, I'm corrupt. I don't stand a chance. I'm dead. I need Jesus to do everything. Something yeah, like that. I mean, it turns into a monarchist. God's the sole actor in salvation. We talked about how in this view, Adam and you, Adam and I are sort of indistinguishable. Mm -hmm. We don't, I mean, if I send in Adam, how is I present there? The word that's often used, and this calls back to genetics and blood, is in his loins mm -hmm. or in his, in his seed, literally. It, it means instead of the apple not fall, falling far from the tree, the apple and the tree are no different. The product of Adam and Adam are not different. Mm -hmm. Back to if you hear, could somebody have done better than Adam? Could somebody have? Well, no. You know, well, why is that? Because we're all in some way identical. It causes additional problems when you read that same logic onto God. I'm really, Adam's descendants don't really have a will afterwards. I mean, people will talk about the compatibilist notion of freedom, that God's sovereignty and man's freedom, there's a way to work that out. I've never read an account that left me satisfied, but... When you, when you read this idea of the collapsing of, of people into one person and, and, and their will and who they are into the same thing, then people are determined. And God looks determined also, which would ruin his freedom, mm -hmm. which would make him not so much God anymore. Sometimes they'll talk about how man has freedom. And this is where in the total depravity, the whole two up, a lot of times total depravity gets re-clarified as total inability. Mm -hmm. It's not that man, he, he does have a will, but it's only free to do evil. So the man has no freedom to do good because he doesn't want to. His will is, is in default towards only enjoying evil all the time. And then throw in the verses, the inclinations of man's heart was only evil all the time. Man has freedom, but it's useless. The way I like to put it is the total uselessness of the will. It's, it's useless. It's always going to get you deeper and deeper into trouble. That's the link that is assumed to inherited by us. So why, when you hear depravity, why isn't it uselessness? Is it just 
this is an honest question, but it's, it's complicated because you, I hear depravity, total depravity. I think I'm only doing evil in my actions. And I remember being somewhat tortured by this. And I think somebody would say, well, that's the spirit, you know, awakening you or something like that. And maybe, but I remember being really thrown off by, well, I, I don't do just evil all the time. And I don't know that anybody, maybe somebody. Yeah, this is where the common grace idea comes in. Yeah, the common grace idea. But isn't that, an, and I don't, again, I don't disagree with common grace. I know common grace exists, but right. is it is its application in this context appropriate? I don't think so. I yeah. think that common grace is about the general providence. When Jesus talks common grace, he says the, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Good things happen to good and bad people. Not not because they were predestined or because God laid it out, but because it's the way the world is. I mean, the, the world is a gift. An evil person and a good person can sit at a beach and both enjoy a sunset. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a, a lower-level common grace. In terms of total depravity, common grace gets more defined as God's restriction and restraining actively of human evil that they would have liked to do, but he prevented it. Here's another example. All your works are evil, right? Well, your, your works are evil in terms of obtaining salvation. That's what the Calvinists would say. It's because they're so tainted by your sin. They're never pure. My motivations? They never even get close to pure. The way that it, they get validated is because of Christ. With Luther and, and with the other reformers, our good works are trash. They are... Luther compares them to a pile of dung, mm -hmm. like a steaming pile of dung. But Christ's righteousness that he won for us covers it. And so your works are literally crap. But Christ, it's almost like you got an F and Jesus went and fixed all the answers. How are you? Yes, that's you know, how. Or, yeah. or some other mm -hmm. you know, analogy like that. And that gift of the A is given to you, but it's not really your, you didn't earn that. Right. Well, it's kind of like Jesus did your homework for you. But I mean, <laughs> are these analogies even proper? I feel like N.T. Wright, because I, I know when N.T. Wright gets in a group setting, he, he's always kind of saying, are these the right questions? Are we asking the right questions? Or are we asking questions today that were pertinent in a very particular context 500, 600 years ago? Yeah. And then we're getting really off track by asking those questions today. Yeah, and, and to be honest, Christian theology is not hard. There's nothing actually super difficult about it. It's when you layer on philosophy and philosophy, which the New Testament writers see as the wisdom of this world is foolishness. You can spend all your life. It's funny, you look at the history of Western philosophy. Each successive generation is debunking the previous <laughs> philosophy yeah. and same with science mm -hmm. every single time. A lot of times they're not building upon it. They're destroying it or they're, it's the springboard for maybe some other thought or idea. But the, the thing that makes the gospel hard to understand, the Old Testament hard mm. to understand is not the Bible itself. It's that we've, I believe, I think we both do, that this is one of the key places, the, the original sin, the total depravity, the uh, confusion of what's a person and what's a will. Are those two things the same? If who I am and my will are identical, that means I have no freedom because my nature determines my will. Mm. Before Adam and Eve fall, their nature is perfect, which, again, we don't believe 
I don't believe that they were perfect, determined that they were perfect. After the fall, their nature determines that they are evil and that the only good that they do is by accident. Or it's uh, a mi such a mix, it's like for selfish gain. Instead of helping somebody who needs help, you're also calculating how this might be reciprocated and whether or not this would be advantageous in the future for whatever reason. You keep your enemies close and, or whatever. And, and, it, and it does make sense. That's, it's not that that's not true, that we're like that. But the reasoning is different. Mm -hmm. It doesn't come from this inherited depravity. It comes from, according to Hebrews, slavery to the fear of death. So, so imagine some scenario. You're either in a work situation where you want to move up, or you might fake making friends, fake doing the right things, fake all of that just for advance. And why do you want the advance? Well, it's for security. Why do you want the security? Well, it's because eventually you want to, I don't know, you want, you want to be safe. You want to be safe during the winter and have heat. And of course. And there's nothing wrong with that in one sense. Mm -hmm. In another sense, when it, when it causes you to uh, sacrifice morality, sacrifice love for, for the fear of death, which is only really sort of mitigated by, by building up sources of security, mm -hmm. whether money or health or insurance or whatever, or hierarchies that would develop. If that's your reason, then, then it leads to the parable of the rich man where he's, the rich man who Jesus calls a fool. The young man who kept the entire law? There's two. Okay. Uh, well, there's at least two. There's like, the rich man at Lazarus, the rich, the rich young ruler. And then mm -hmm. in this scenario, this man is a farmer and he's got barns. He's got a place to, oh, yeah. or, yeah. or he's got stocks or he's got whatever. His profiles have, they've abundantly exceeded expectation. And he's, what do I do with all this? I'm going to build more barns. He doesn't say to himself, I'm going to open a food bank. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. So you can just imagine, imagine the construction of these buildings. It's a parable, but you know, imagine this, this guy is working towards this so that he can say to himself, soul, relax. This goes back to our, to the last episode with the idea of ease and the idea of paradise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Paradise just being, you can find that you can relax. Because the, the impulse is never abated. The impulse is only yes. and always, I need more, I need more, I need more. And that, I think, is a, is a decent segue into, you're going to find as you listen to these conversations that we're always trying to reset. Why are we here? Why are we even talking about this in the first place? Well, Matt and I had a conversation on Easter Sunday, 15 years ago now, where we're at church having our end of service discussion and it was Easter Sunday and we were just kind of frustrated and sad thinking, why are we here? You know, we were doing mental gymnastics with doctrines and theologies and trying to make it make sense. And then it was Easter Sunday. We were supposed to be celebrating the resurrection. And I remember being upset that I was going to go to an Easter egg hunt with family, you know, people I loved. But I was like, is this all the resurrection gets us? And, you know, I knew the answer was no. And Matt and I were lamenting that fact together for about 20 minutes after the service. And then we were going to go our ways to probably two separate Easter egg hunts with family yeah. <laughs> and celebrate Easter eggs and candy and money for the kids. And I like, know. why, 
I know. We're talking was, about resurrection of the Son of God. I remember that day. I have this weird memory where I remember where I think things. I remember standing right there, and you had been reading N.T. Wright. I just seen right as the boogeyman because all the reformed are like scared of him. And when you're talking about the resurrection, and if you've never looked at N.T. Wright's profile, or you should, uh, but he's got a massive volume called The Resurrection of the Son of God. And I think you've been reading it. He makes the point in it. It's never left me. We wouldn't have Christmas unless there had been an Easter because uh, we'd never known who Jesus was. There's no convincing these people without this event. But he makes the point, you conveyed it to me, that why is it for, for Christmas we have weeks and weeks leading up? This this last year, I'm, my, my co-workers, what is it? Like the day after Halloween and they start playing Christmas music on their phones. Oh, man, I don't have to deal with this for two months. I don't need to get, what's the Wham song and the Mariah Carey and, and all these. You know, I don't want these stuck in my head all day. But then you think Easter. Easter egg hunt. There's nothing. Bunny. The bunny. Money yeah. for the kids. I know. Quarters in the plastic eggs made in China. <laughs> I, my parents and probably my grandparents always thought I was sort of the Grinch for never going along with Santa and some of these things. And it wasn't that I Although, you know, Santa is omniscient, sort of omnipresent. Oh, yes, he is. Um, the kid cannot distinguish between Santa Claus and God. And then someday you're going to tell them because Santa Claus doesn't exist and wonder why they became an atheist. But anyway, besides that, besides that, I would just always thought, why do we have to do this on the same day? If, it, if the Easter egg hunt was a week later, great. But come on, why are you going to confuse a child? It's the equivalent of grabbing a flank steak when you have a grade A uh, ribeye, ribeye, thank you. <laughs> I was trying to pick the right cut, but when there is no cost to picking the ribeye, zero cost to going with the ribeye over the okay. flank steak, and we all go, "Give me the flank." Yeah, what's the? You know, give me a better analogy. The CS Lewis, uh, where we can't imagine a day at the beach because we're happy with playing in mud puddles. Hundred percent. That's always been my feeling. I'm like, Jesus is better than Santa. But why, why are you giving Santa the episode? Do you really think he's better? And then it's like, oh, you're ruining the magic. No, you're ruining the reality. Even if, even if you try to talk about the fact that the legendary St. Nicholas was in subjection to Christ and then try yeah. to merge the two, it's almost like, no, that's not good enough. I want magic Santa. Give me magic Santa that's fake. I know the real Saint Nicholas is much more interesting. He's much more interesting. For being so dead on Santa Claus. I told my grandmother, I'm like, I got an icon of Saint Nicholas this year. And uh and she's like confused because I've made all these comments about Santa Claus. Well, they're not the same. Well, one might have developed from the other loosely. You know, you think of uh, most of uh these Santa Claus, Krampus, they're all like these German. They were creepy at one time. You look at pictures of Santa Claus before Coca-Cola got a hold of him. And he's scary. Like he should be in Grimm's fairy tales or something. And so I, yeah, I've never understood this, uh, this mixing, but back to what we were talking about. The, the point was just to recalibrate just slightly and then feel free to go again. It seems like, and maybe I'm wrong, and again, I do think we would benefit from having somebody on to push back mm -hmm. in real time. 
at some point. But if our doctrines get us here to this frustration on Easter Sunday, and make no mistake, I feel it every Easter Sunday, is there something wrong with our doctrines? Go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is. To finish off the, how we left the conversation, because it, it really did motivate me later to think that why is the resurrection, why does it take a backseat to the passion mm-hmm. or to, to Christmas, really to everything? I used to do a lot of uh, evangelism one-on-one. After I came to faith, I, I just felt like it was what you're supposed to do. I'm not saying that's wrong. I took a real interest in it and led me into apologetics and led me here to who I am now. But I would uh, get in these long conversations with with people on the, on the gospel. And I remember realizing at one point, at one time we were part of a group. None of us in our gospel presentation that I can think of even talked about the resurrection. Like we didn't even know how to incorporate it. Mm. We're evangelicals, somewhat schooled in apologetics, somewhat schooled in, you know, how to share the gospel. And I'll just tell you, like, this is how the modern evangelical, like if, if you're going to have to share the gospel in two, three minutes, you're a sinner. The, the penalty for sin is, is hell. Jesus came to pay your punishment and he rose from the grave to prove it. And if you believe in him, that you could spend all day really with a person talking about their sin. You could spend all day talking about God's love manifested on the cross. Of course, I don't deny this, but when you get to the resurrection, you see it as this was the evidence necessary to convince the masses that Jesus really was who he says he was. So it turns into an apologetical necessity where if we read Hebrews again, the reason the reason Jesus takes on flesh, and the incarnation is right there in Hebrews, is to defeat Satan in the flesh as a human. So there's it's just so much deeper. Like Christ is he's taking on what we are in solidarity with mankind, really to restart the Edenic, the Edenic plan God had already had going all this time. He kept getting sidetracked, but now this is He's, he's committed to it. Like in a lot of ways that God's righteousness is this commitment to his, his promises. He, he doesn't break his promises. So he comes this time in the line of David, according to the prophecies, so that he will, he will go after death and Satan. And where does he defeat them? He defeats sin, yes, at the cross, but it's not complete without is bare on resurrection. That's why they get emphasized. That's why they're in the creed. Is there a part of it to the average hearer in our context, in our American context, that maybe thinks some of the ways God operates are arbitrary? Like, well, why did Jesus have to rise from the dead? To prove it? To just, Could he have done it a different way? These are the questions that I think people ask, and maybe that's an us problem. I think it is, to some degree, an us problem. But I think what you're getting at with your last comment is, hey, the narrative is actually really tied together and there are reasons for what happens or, or how Hebrews is, is articulating you know, yeah. the resurrection. And, and not only the Hebrews, but the verses that we're familiar with that we used to read John 3.16, for God so the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish. Mm-hmm. We hear that word perish. What do we think of? Mm. 
What, what would you think of death vanishing? What would you have thought that 10 years ago when you heard the word perish? Um, yeah, I think, I, I mean, yeah. What's the alternative? Hell. Oh, okay. You know, I think a lot of people read that as punishment. Like annihilation? Not necessarily. Um, probably just, uh, just some sort of eternal okay. hell. Yeah, yeah. That we would not suffer hell, but have everlasting life. Hmm. See, the contrast then becomes not between her death and life, which if you took the everlasting life, then... I mean, the opposite of that is not hell. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's, uh, it's death. What I mean is we, we took those verses, or at least I had, and people I know had, and we spiritualized them. Yes. Instead of being about something literal, yeah, they right. got turned into something about the soul. Like when Paul talks about he transferred us from the dominion, pretty much of Satan, to the kingdom of, of the Son. Right. What do we think of that? Well, if you're a foreign, you're thinking of something like election. You're, mm-hmm. you're taken from damnation. What was going to happen to you is damnation, except that God had chosen you and applied his saving work to you. That's the transference. But if you read it literally, we're talking about Satan's domain. In Hebrews, that's the realm of death. Yeah. And the kingdom of the Son, it's, it's much more literal. These things are... We, we've had to spiritualize them and to read it as either soul or something to do with something interior that really leaves off the body. And this is why resurrection, I think, doesn't get emphasized because the body's problem isn't really seen as a problem. It's the soul's problem. It's the will's problem. It's the mind's problem. So let's, let's summarize kind of what we've been talking about. So it sounds like the map we're using if, if the map we're using is a system, a logical system, mm-hmm. we're going to draw particular conclusions and we're going to act a certain way. Yes. If we try and get back to, and again, we're not able to do this perfectly. Obviously, the Bible is filled with historical context, cultural context that we're not going to be able to articulate no matter how many episodes we do. But if we get somehow closer to the map of the author's, of scripture, mm-hmm. of God, of the Holy Spirit, our lives are going to look differently. Like people like Freud come along and they start evaluating our, our motivations based on either the desire to procreate or, or the fear of death and, and Christians, well, I don't blame them. I think Freud is a mess, but reject it wholeheartedly. Yeah. They don't just, this has no, you think Darwin comes along and he's mm-hmm. a liar, you know, when he's looking at the variations in species or whatever, think about it. the young earth creationists, mm-hmm. which I'm not down them or anything, but like the, the young earth creationists and others, they're trying to preserve the gospel mm-hmm. of salvation from Adam's sin. Yes. And the they genesis. need this genetic continuity to even understand what the Bible means. So, yeah, they would react strongly if something challenged that. All along, it's since they're trying to preserve the depravity in Adam that's passed genetically. And if you get rid of that, they don't know what the gospel is anymore. Mm-hmm. That's an issue. And then evolution is out there. I don't even, I don't well, even random evolution, but, right. but they're out there saying, look, death is actually, it's playing a greater role. Although they don't always put it that way. Really. That's what it means. I mean, animals are trying to survive. They're adapting to right. survive and so forth, their environment. And I guess my point is when you leave this gap, Somebody's going to fill in the storyline. 
And, and because the Western world, uh, I, in a lot of ways, emphasize the, the soul over the body, which is not, it's just not a biblical way of thinking. Mm. You know, the body and the soul are not, they're not in this tension that they make it out to be. The body needs salvation. We don't try to escape the body, right? but we wait for its liberation. That's right. where Paul, yeah. you know, Paul talks about to be out of the body and with the Lord is good. Like it's, it's, it's good for him. This idea that if, if he had to be martyred, that he could go be with the Lord, but he's concerned about the, the people also, because he's shepherding them. But at the same time for Paul, if he had a bodiless existence in heaven without new earth would have been like hell. Yeah, the body is dependent on the soul in such a way that you cannot separate the two for the purpose of study. It's very quantum in, in that sense. And that's why the imagery, I think, of God, God's, Adam's body is already there, mm -hmm. but God animates it, the spirit. But we get animated by different spirits, by different things. Like originally, you're supposed to be animated with God's life, with, uh, and that's going to lead you into happiness and into uh, communion and to family. And in the fall, they are animated by another mind. It's not the mind that came from Adam's, you know, that they inherited. His actual flesh. It's Satan. Yeah. Right. Satan's got ideas. That's a perfect segue into kind of what the main point that we really wanted to start addressing today, which is contingency. Um, so contingency being the antidote in many ways to original sin. Yes. Yes. One of the main presuppositions of the Reformation and in all evangelism, every gospel message you ever hear in the, in Western churches that are Protestant is the idea that man, every person is trying to be good enough to get to heaven. Mm -hmm. Right. And yet name one person, you know. Who's trying to be that good? I don't know anyone. There is no one. I don't know anyone trying to do anything. Right. So yeah, like right points out, we're reading we're reading medieval Catholicism and their problems onto the whole the whole of history. Yes. I mean Luther did it all the way back to how he reads the Jews at the time of, of Christ. That we're all self righteous. We're all trying to establish our own righteousness. And this you know, I, I don't know how many witnessing conversations I don't think any of these people are, are really that caught up in, uh, in, in trying the to world of ascetical endeavors and trying to make God, you know, yeah, good enough for God. Maybe not for God, but there is a sense that we're trying to build a resume for people we love yeah. or, you know, for a romantic partner or, or for some kind of, or for ourselves or yeah. for ourselves. And I'm drawing from Keller when I say that. Um, no, that's, of course that's true. Yeah. There's good in ways, good and bad way. I mean, you want to feel, you want to feel validated by your own standard. You want to feel validated by your own standard. And so your, the, the resume you're, you're building is purely for yourself. But I think when people get a taste of religion, and God, then I think they want to bring that resume and present it to God and say, well, look at, look at me. Here's what I deserve. If we're trying to project an outward persona that isn't true, if we learn, want to get people to think better of us, then we just have to like do whatever they, whatever they want us to mm -hmm. do. You know, you just have to check all the right boxes and, yep. and then hopefully that pans out. And we see that it's just such a, awful phenomenon right now that people can 
just go online, make a few posts, like a few things. And all of a sudden they feel embraced by yes. the world. And I'm like, number one, these people are never going to have your back in a situation where you need to ride home from the hospital. Sure. But, but you get this, uh, delusion, delusion of, of acceptance based on, yes, a type of righteousness. You go for the right social cause, the right politics, the right whatever. I, I remember just recently watching Good Morning America or something, and a guy right after Israel was invaded, these two guys were holding up a cardboard sign saying something like, we, we stand for Israel. High five to you, man. <laughs> you got cardboard and a marker out, and now everybody, you're a hero. You know how, how you really become a hero? You go and you weigh your wife on the line. It's even easier than that online. You just hit like, you just repost, retweet, read whatever. And You're talking about virtue signaling. Yeah. And, and, and I guess, um, nobody is like Luther at the time for the reformation. He is so distraught in his conscience. It never leaves him alone. He wears out his confessor. He confesses more than everybody else. He's, he's walking up the, the staircase to the church on his knees to where the, I'm pretty sure not bloody knees. He's torturing himself. And then he reads his own experience onto everyone. Now it's now we are all internally divided and it's the worst feeling to know that your motivations are, are divided. There's a, it's from a song. It says, uh, have you ever felt the weight of loving all the things you hate? That sucks. In your person, you hate it. And if you could flip a switch right now, take a pill right now, get vaccinated right now, I think a true believer would would sign up for that. And and only reason I think that God doesn't do that for most people is that He wants to see our struggle, and not not the pain of the struggle, but that we really are. Like the pearl of great price. You got to go diving. People, instead of this, of this idea that's been read onto them, that they're, they're trying to become righteous enough for God. In the Bible, the thing that, that establishes the difference between God and us is not mainly, I mean, yes, that God is holy, but we can become holy. He said, be holy is right. the, the thing that keeps us the most different is that God's uncreated and we're created. Contingency. It's contingency. Mm-hmm. The modern atheists, imagine a scenario back to our Santa Claus thing. I've, I've seen this in atheistic debates on YouTube and, and I, w- I wish somebody would call them on that. How stupid mm. it is, but they'll be explaining to someone how easy it is to drop your religion or belief in God in general by comparing it to when you stopped believing in Santa Claus. Wait, I'm pretty sure Santa Claus is a creature <laughs> yeah. and God is not a creature. Right. Conceptually, you've confused everything. Mm-hmm. You've reduced God down to something uh, that we all share in common, but he actually, even as a concept, even, even if you took God as just a concept, then you can't do that. You can never reduce him to, to creature because he's the source of life for all creatures. You can see how an idea like that, can be let loose in somebody's mind and just perpetuate confusion nonstop. Mm. And then they start acting out on that misperceived or not misperceived, ill-conceived idea. And they start acting out in their life 
uh, well, none of this is real, so I can do what I want. And that's kind of the goal of the, the serpent in the garden is let's unleash an idea that confuses yeah. the fact that I know, which is that we're all dependent on yes. God, but I want his creatures to die. And so how can I do that? How can I create confusion? So much of everything that I see wrong just in my own life, my own mind, and of course, that which is around me is just confusion from an idea that was planted that has gone crazy, disordered, borrowed so from Augustine. That's what's so genius about, about the wording of, of Satan in the garden. Mm-hmm. I've told you before, I thought that the goal of the serpent is to destroy a working epistemology. It's how we know what we know. Like, how do you know what you know? How do you know it's true? How do you know your brain is really, how do you know that you are where you are, that your parents are really your parents, that that the earth is, that we're not in a VR simulation. But think with Adam and Eve, they know this environment, God, they know each other. They, they, they know all these things. They know where their place is, where they're supposed to be. Now they're wondering, who am I? Who, who's got that? Like, should I listen to the... Like, am I naked? Yeah. Why am I naked? Yeah. yeah. When you get people this sort of agnosticism and they, and they take it, or they have to imagine the world as, can I know anything? Uh, can I really be sure of anything? That messes you up darn good. I mean, it really does. It, it's, um, we can't stay like that long. We'll make it more practical. Let's, let's say a, a child is adopted and they don't, they don't know that, but somebody wants to hurt them and they want to hurt the adopted person. So the adopted person has this epistemology of basically a story yeah. Uh, that's dependent on what they've been told by their parents. And then all of a sudden this kid comes in, he's just so mad at a biological sibling. And he says, you know what? These parents, my parents, they're not your parents. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, you know, that that's a malicious way to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can envision different scenarios where that information is delivered, but the information delivery is kind of my point. Like, and now all of a sudden this person finds himself in total chaos or even, even achieving spouse, let's say how many times does this repeat all over the world every day? You think everything's stable and secure. And then all of a sudden you get some information. It's not even delivered maliciously. Maybe you just found something. Mm. And then all of a sudden everything you thought, you know, is in total turbulence and yeah, chaos. That's why certain I mean, events. Yeah. Especially anything to do with family, since family is the most basic thing that you come into the world knowing whether it's your mother or father or them together or, or whatever. You, I mean, God is their father and, and Satan's effectively creating some similar scenario because he says he, that's not going to happen. You know, th- this is not going to be the effect. It's like, you can't really trust what he says. He's holding back something you should, something that you deserve. That's so crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. It's crazy. But Satan's goal is their annihilation. Some people have commented that, I remember Michael Heiser, he talks about how Satan isn't necessarily portrayed, and I don't know if he's right or wrong, as hating God, but as hating man. Mm. Whatever the reasoning, I mean, there's a lot of speculation, whether you read it in John Milton or or other people, there's, 
a lot of speculation for Satan's motives, but it seems like, and in the early church fathers, there is this, Satan is anti-human. Mm-hmm. And, and that's why when we see people who want to either make everything, make gas $20 a gallon, so that we'll save the plant, we could see them as sort of anti-human. Oh, absolutely. I was actually, I was just thinking along those lines. Um, you know, I think peak confusion is when you have a group of people who are trying in some of their minds, they're trying to do good, but then you have other people who have co-opted the system who are inhabited by a spirit of, of anti-humanness mm-hmm. who are now using the good intentions of the well-intentioned people yeah. <laughs> to create this end, which is anti-human and $20, yeah. $20 gas is a good example. You no, know, yeah. do we love burning, burning gas? You know, do Matt and I personally love burning gas? Do we think no. it's great for the planet? No, but do we understand the necessity of it? given yeah. <laughs> human flourishing in our, in our world. But it's this idea that if you, whether you're Satan or whether you're the, the people saying that we should have no more than how many, 500 million, 5 million, whoever, who knows what people on the planet. Or yeah, then, yeah. And that we need to pretty much kill what some half <laughs> you first, as you know, Peterson always says, I, I think, well, yeah, they have to co-opt the, good intentions, the morality, um, to, to even convince somebody. But in the end, what are they, what are these people really imagining? You know, like I've heard Bezos wants to colonize, what is it Mars or something? And then make the earth a giant, like a national park, something like that. <laughs> interesting. And I think, well, <laughs> it is interesting. Uh, I mean, everybody sort of loves nature in the sense that you want to see it in a pristine state. But that pristine state is a bunch of animals killing each other, I'm pretty sure. So we're the, I don't know, somehow we're the worst of the predators. Mm -hmm. But anyway, that's the logic that you need to get people to be convinced that we should be anti-life and anti-human. We have to, like, stop having so many children. We have to... I know people who have signed up as young women to be sterilized to save the planet, and they and they believe that their their dog will take the place of this of this child. Well, and again, the origin of this conversation that we're on now is this idea that you know one idea gets inputted and screws up your epistemology essentially. Yeah, just corrupts it beyond repair. I mean, how many times when you listen to a political argument, which hopefully we're not doing too much of that, but do you think to yourself, well, no, their assumption here is off. And so everything they say is crazy. Most people will not evaluate their presuppositions mm-hmm. or even ask what they are. And hence our conversation about original sin. Yeah. You know, and you and I only discovered our, our frustration with it by being at, at church on an Easter Sunday, frustrated that, you know, we checked the box of going to the service and then we were going to do the Easter egg hunts and have a nice dinner. But it's like, wait a second. This is the resurrection of Christ. But see, what's different about us is than, than somebody who gets the solution about their faith. We're looking at our faith and saying, wait, no, resurrection is at the core of our faith. Mm-hmm. What is keeping us from celebrating the resurrection? And it's, it actually traces back to original sin because it's a thing that you need salvation from most right. is your will. Then that's where you celebrate. Mm. And that's going to happen on on Good Friday, mm. not on not on Sunday. And even then, there's really no lead up. Most Western churches don't practice. 
went is sort of a joke in a lot of places. You know, I gave up chocolate. You know, it's yeah. like when I hear that, I'm like, wow. Well, and, and and I should clarify too. I don't mean to equate those believing in original sin to those believing other what we would consider wacky presuppositions. I'm not equating the two, so I don't mean to do that. I'm just saying if you have a a incomplete, let's say, view of something, you're which is all of us, of course. Right. But some some incompleteness is bigger and more broad than other incompleteness, right? So you're going to get off the ultimate path. There's gonna be consequences. Even if you don't even if you don't play them out logically. What's different about the reformers is that they they were consistently applying the logic. And a quick example. Think of think of Mary in the Catholic Church. Like why is she venerated? Why does she get so much attention in the Catholic Church when she was immaculately conceived to spare her the deterministic outcome of original sin. Mm. So like she's the first, now I, mean, I go to an Orthodox church, we venerate Mary, but to me it's for a, a totally different reason. To me, she's the model example of election. She spared original sin. And so is Jesus. So they're not auto damned, mm. either one of them, mm-hmm. or auto programmed to, to, um, to act in an evil way. Mm. But, but that makes them so different from humanity everybody else mm-hmm. but in what way did they did they they didn't use their will to get this accomplished this is god's doing right you know so we don't typically praise people who did not have to fight an internal battle get the job done you know had to put in the work we don't we don't go around praising trust fund kids, you know, or something like that. It's the hard worker. And in Mary's case, I don't see how she really is truly willing of her own will because Mm -hmm. it's already been sort of saved. Mm -hmm. And even the Immaculate Conception Doctrine is invented to save her. The Immaculate Conception Doctrine is the idea that her parents had relations that resulted in her or her birth. But that that, uh, conception... Because in the Augustinian system, pretty much every act of, of reproduction is inherently evil. Oh, okay. um, so Mary's saved from that. And then Jesus is saved from that. Mm. And that actually has a lot of interesting series, series of necessities. Yeah. Based on, but if you've thought of, uh, just to give an example, if you thought of, okay, why, why is Mary venerated? And like say the Orthodox Church, or maybe the way a Protestant would logically do it, reading the Bible. She's in the Annunciation. She's told she's going to give birth without her husband, mm-hmm. right? So that's an issue. That's going to be an issue at home. That's going to be an issue in the community. That's going to be. And Joseph is ready to ditch her. There's not a lot of options for women in that world if you're if you're. Um, if your morality is compromised in that way, it's probably going to be a really crappy life. She's telling the angel, though it might even re- result in a death penalty to commit adultery, if that's how people see it, be it done to me according to your word. So her, she's giving a free will response based on who she is, based on who she's grown up to be, to an angel that's going to threaten her life. 
And then later, she uh, when Jesus is presented in the temple, and Simeon, you know, he's the old man, he's waiting for the coming of Christ, and he tells her, a sword is going to pierce your soul. This is what she signs up for. And she's acting in defiance of all the survival concerns that would have presented themselves, mm-hmm. all the deaths to her, you know, relationship to the family, Joseph, the culture, whatever. And then she's going to have to take on this pain of seeing her son suffer. Well, now you get it. Here's why we venerate. Mary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not because she was immaculately mm-hmm. conceived because God picked her and because she then acted in a deterministic sense already predetermined by God. Well, even just listening to you articulate that story, I've never heard that. I've never heard that. Not once in my life. Um, I've had questions about Mary, but I, you know, again, growing up, typically evangelical you're like oh well the catholics worship mary we don't do that so we're better and and that's kind of the extent of it so everything you just said right there is worthy of tons of continued discussion we honor the proper use of freedom Mm. and then we emulate people who properly use their freedom and they become our heroes but freedom's a dangerous word yeah and some of our systematic theologies it's a it's a dangerous word it's not at least how lay people like me hear it and take it in i i do not doubt for a second that the academic christians among us who i appreciate and i have no disrespect for must be seething kind of when they hear somebody like me say this because it's like well no you've got it all wrong well it's like fine yes but why where's the disconnect between the sermons on sunday that kids go to and hear and then become adults like you can't demand that everybody become an academic theologian that's not practical it's not possible let's figure out ways to tell the story differently that convey these deep truths dare i say are attractive because i think the biblical narrative is deeply attractive to to the human soul the longing in the human soul yes what do we need to do to 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 do those things better so that the presuppositions walking around in people's heads are not so bad and of course we depend on the holy spirit for for movement we do nothing apart from christ we are completely contingent on him and we definitely need to talk about contingency more next time yes i think for today we're gonna have to wrap it up kind of there was a great thing to end on the on the mary story and just kind of exploring that a little bit more um any final thoughts from you matt just to say the reason why freedom freedom and you hear it as the alternative to determinism it makes it sound like we have complete libertarian free will like nothing affects us and what we'll get into next time is that that's not what we're talking about when you define freedom in relation to the thing that you're opposed to you stay in this stuck world and that's the debate of Pelagius and Augustine they're talking on polar opposites once you've got complete access to freedom whenever you want it Pelagius if you just choose it Augustine's like nope you don't exactly. you don't have any of that and because they both don't even discuss contendency death all these things they end up just creating a mess. Polar opposite extremes. Yeah. And freedom is is neither of those things. 
that's what we'll jump into next time. And I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. And before we go, uh, if anybody has any thoughts from today, please write. We have a new email address. So things are changing rapidly around here at Trouble in Paradise. But we do have a new email address. It's adam at trouble dash in in dash paradise.com. Adam at trouble dash in in dash paradise.com. Thanks again for joining everybody. And we will talk to you later.